Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM. German Street Theatre presents a classic unromantic comedy, Yours Unfaithfully, by the legendary actor Miles Mallison. Anne and Stephen are the happiest couple in their neighbourhood, their secret, an open marriage. After all, it's the 1930s, no need to be old-fashioned. In co-production with New York's Mint Theatre Company, the New York Times calls it very funny, very nearly a tragedy, Yours Unfaithfully is a hilarious peek at 1930s suburban England. Running at German Street Theatre from June 1st to July the 1st, with tickets from just £10. Book now via germanstreettheatre.co.uk. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, I see you bustling in through the door with a letter in your hand. <laughs> I didn't know where you were leading there. Yes, here I am, <laughs> bustling through the door. That's the only way I can come through a door. In fact. I have to say this is a slightly <laughs> metaphorical door and a metaphorical bustle, but come with us, listeners. I do have a letter in my hand from a lovely listener in Australia who was very happy to hear us talk about snails. Really happy, I think, that we sort of stood up for snails, as it were. And I'll quote a little bit from the letter. She said, now this is really, I shouldn't be quoting this bit, but I'm going to. She said, what a sublime pleasure to listen to the TLS podcast. That's what we aim for, sublimity. Very kind. We it do. Is. It absolutely is. She said she's long admired snails and she was wonderfully rewarded to hear Kate Simpson's thoughts. She thought Kate Simpson was brilliant and so did we. And she said it was also a relief to feel that, you know, she's not the only person that likes snails and that they have a champion like Kate Simpson. And she was very pleased to hear us sticking up for the gastropods. She said she's done her best to share her enthusiasm for snails over the years with friends, grandchildren and other patient folk and it, I just think what a what a lovely 
image, a kind of a snail champion. It's like <laughs> yes, the snail yes. liberation <laughs> front being well, formed. Yeah. On this podcast, it's really lovely. It's lovely, and to be honest, they do need as many champions as they can get, don't they? I feel a bit bad about my former disparagement of them, or rather my former sort of disapproval of them. Well, I, I know, me too, and I actually, it has borne fruit because I've been much more mindful in the garden. And this morning, I was talking about how many thrushes I have in my garden, which I think is a great thing, but they're not a friend to a snail. Mm. And I saw one this morning, and my first thought was, Go away and don't eat a snail, even if it means a happier life for my hoster. Oh, well, there we go. That's good. And in fact, our lovely listener has mentioned that she has actually written a poem about the snails. But so what we would like to do is ask if it's OK if we read a bit of it out. We won't do it this week because we haven't asked yet. But if you are listening, please do let us know if it's OK for us to read a little bit of your lovely poem out. Yeah, we'd really like to because it's a lovely poem. It's yeah, lovely. And if anybody else wants to write to us and tell us about snails or books or what they're thinking or about gardens or anything else, please do. It's letters at the hyphen TLS dot co dot uk and we would really love to hear from you before we get to the rest of the program lucy like can i just check in on your blue poppy oh you can guess what happened it came out another color didn't it no 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 it came out <gasps> it's blue it's wonderful it's beautiful it's really beautiful i'm i'm so pleased i think there might even be another one on it i sit and look at it when i should be doing other things I'm amazed we've got you here on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm going to get straight down to business so that you can go back to admiring your So I can go puppy. back and look at it, yeah. So yeah. let's get right to business. On this week's show, Norma Clark joins us to talk about Polly Toynbee's gripping memoir and Nicholas Clee on an intriguing novel from Paul Murray. But first, journalist Polly Toynbee will be familiar to many. A stalwart voice on the left, associated mostly with the Guardian newspaper, inspiring or infuriating, I suppose, depending on whether you agree with her. She is an author as well as a journalist and has written many books on the state of the nation's politics or investigating and highlighting the lives and conditions of people who are downtrodden, neglected or exploited. But her latest book turns the focus on herself and on her family life. It's called An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals. And Norma Clark, herself the author of a family memoir called Not Speaking, has written us a brilliant review of it. So we're delighted she can join us today to talk about it. Norma, many thanks for coming. Oh, delighted. Thanks for inviting me. So for this book, right from the title, Polly Toynbee indicates that this is not a, a happy family memoir. Why is she uneasy about her inheritance? That is so interesting, isn't it? She tells a story at the beginning about the genesis of the book. She says that she was doing some programmes for Radio 4 on what people felt about class, not what they thought about it, but what they felt about it. And in the course of doing these interviews, the producer said to her, well, why don't you include what you feel about class? And her reaction to that was that she, as she puts it, she completely clammed up and didn't know what to say and didn't want to talk about it. So even the, the business of writing about her own feelings about class made her uneasy, to use the word of her title. And then what she actually does, I mean, it's true that she turns the focus on herself, as you said, but in a slightly, well, I suppose, clammed up sort of a way, she's really talking about the 
previous generation and the one before that. So her grandparent generation and her father, she doesn't talk about her mother. She says right towards the end that um, yeah, it would have been a different story if she talked about her much loved mother, but she didn't want to do that. In a way that's quite, I think, significant because the people that she talks about are the ones that make her uncomfortable, that cause the unease, which is you know, in the title of the book. That's her father and her grandparents, well, her grandfathers on both sides and one grandmother. So it's a very selective, it's a very selective memoir and it has a purpose. And that purpose is to talk about the failure of progressive activism, such as that that she was most familiar with. It's the failure of people who wanted to do what she's wanted to do in her life, as you describe it, to try to understand what it's like to be poor, which she never was, and to report on that to investigate and report on it and try to change it. And she has tried to change it. I mean, she's a very impressive person, I think, because there she is born, as she says, in not the lap of luxury, but in a very privileged position and never having any sense of um, uncertainty or fear about her own material comfort and also intellectual comfort. It's a double-edged thing here. And yet wanting to bring about social change and being appalled, and this is the, the message of the book, is absolutely appalled by the fact that about 200 years worth of this sort of activism has brought us to the position that we're in now, which is that it's no better and in many ways infinitely worse than it was, let's say, when she was born into it. What was I found so interesting about reading your review was that you gave a sense throughout it, and just as you're saying here, that she was actually conducting that inquiry kind of in the course of writing the book, that the book was part of the process. Is that how it felt when you were reading it and also obviously that includes emotional feelings about yes. her family as well as these more sort of broad ideological concerns. Yes I think you're absolutely right I think that it was a revelation to her and one of the things that surprised me was when she she says quite early on that she hadn't shown much interest in these forebears before starting to work on the book. So, so she worked on some of them as, a, yeah, as an academic researcher. There are biographies of all these people. So she goes and reads the biographies. And that, that was rather surprising to me. And some other things that she says were surprising. So for example, she describes being invited to go on Woman's Hour to talk about one of her books. And she's nervous because she understands there's going to be an American historian, a feminist historian called Ellen Ross, who's also going to be on the programme, who's just written a book about the 
late 19th century, early 20th century, women who went into the slums to do good works, who were called slum travellers. And she says she knows nothing about any of this. And it just seemed to me extraordinary that given the kind of inheritance that she's talking about, she couldn't not know about mm. that sort of activity. So when she meets Ellen, and as it happens, Ellen is a friend of mine, so I've told <laughs> Ellen about this. So when she meets her in the studio, she's surprised that Ellen's a you know, kind of you know, perfectly nice person and has things to tell her about these slum travellers that is not sceptical or scathing. And she doesn't think of them in a negative way as Lady Bountifuls. And Polly Toynbee had gone there assuming that that would be the kind of reaction that she would get to her kind of attempts to live amongst the poor, to you know, all those very valiant things that she did, taking low-paid jobs in order to know what it felt like. So this very sort of hardwired defensiveness Yes. You know, an anxious <laughs> defensiveness rather than just a kind of bristly one, something that was really yes. sort of an anxiety in yes. there. I mean, I find it absolutely psychologically fascinating, I must say. And I not to probe too deeply into your relationship with your friend, but what <laughs> did Ellen sort of report back about that encounter? Was she really surprised and, and thought she didn't understand why Polly Toynbee would feel like that? No, she didn't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> But that's interesting because she wasn't dreading it. For her, it was a part of her work. So she did her work and she met someone and that was straightforward. Whereas clearly for Polly Toynbee, she thought, I'm going to get attacked for being... <gasps> I wanted to talk about this, actually, but let's let's talk about it now. The champagne socialist thing, because I was thinking about this, is very derogatory. Yeah. But it just, it seems to me it's such a useful insult for the right <laughs> wing, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. And everything Polly Toynbee says about the impossible position that it puts you in psychologically, I think is quite right. Because, you know, you don't want to give up the comforts. You don't want to not have the things that you have. Or if you do, you know, as she says, you're trying to find somewhere livable between Mahatma Gandhi and hypocrisy. Well, you know, it is really difficult. <laughs> Let's take it to the extreme. Let's say one end. Let's say, okay, you feel terrible if you've got lots of money, you feel terrible about it. If you gave it all away, you would help some people, of course, but you wouldn't help as many people as you would if you changed the system. That's right. So surely exactly. it's okay to try and change the system, even if you do have money. I just think it's so clever how it's been sort of weaponized because it also seems to me that if I were a right-wing politician or, you know, someone that wanted to kind of stop that sort of thing going on, I wouldn't want people with who had access and wealth and influence and power I wouldn't want them campaigning yeah <laughs> so no. you make people feel bad for having that yes it's a very good point and I think the other thing one might ask is what the real source of the feelings is mm. it's very easy to make that connection between you know the discomfort around material comforts and wanting to do good and say, well, that's why I feel badly about it all. But of course, the sources of the feelings could be quite other. And they are here, aren't they? I mean, I don't mean they're only other. It's more complicated. But, you know, what comes again out of your review, and obviously the book, is that she had a very traumatic family background. I mean, 
huge amounts of really quite horrible things. Tell us a bit about that. I was so struck by that. I mean, it was it made it, as I say in the review, it made it quite an uneasy read at times because I could feel her, especially in relation to her father, I could feel her really trying to balance obviously strong feelings of affection for him and at the same time all the other more negative feelings that you know which had very good basis in her experience of him and it was a struggle and I I didn't feel that she as I'm reading I want her to be able to just unload it somehow get it off her back I, I still felt that she was very troubled by some of it and I wondered why there's some stories I really did wonder why she told and one of them I I also repeat it in the review because I mean actually when I was reading it made me gasp out loud which is the story of her first day at the Observer newspaper where she's followed her father into he was foreign correspondent at the Observer her grandfather Arnold Toynbee had written very regularly for the paper. So she goes and works there. And and that in itself, this sort of following the footsteps, of course, is part of the privilege, isn't it? She's carrying her name in there. And the man on the desk who's been there forever says to her, I hope you won't be like your father. And adds, I hope you won't pee in the lift. And she's already told us that her father was an alcoholic. And she's also told us that she wants to take away the romance around drunkenness. She wants to strip that away. And I suppose that telling the story is part of stripping away the romance. Because it's in the context of saying that often people would, when they heard her name, they would, if they knew the family, they would launch into amusing stories about her father's drunken antics. And her heart would sink when they began. But then she she does it herself, but she does it with a different purpose. But I did, I mean, I did wonder, you know, why as a writer you would want to tell that story? Also, I have to say, not a terribly helpful comment from the guy on the desk for someone on their first day at work. Oh, absolutely dreadful. But in her father, I mean, he was, they were sort of left-wing royalty, wasn't he? Because I hadn't quite put this together. He was friends with Esmond Romelin and Jessica Decker-Mitford. Yeah. And they were the sort of idealistic 30s generation who went, they went to Spain to fight Franco and they kind of repudiated their, well, in the Mitford's case, very, very privileged and upper-class background. And they, they did seem like very glamorous figures, didn't they? They did, and Holly Toynbee says that as a as a child, she was in love with them, you know, through her father's stories about them. So all of that had a powerful grip on her, and some of the writing, I think, is a sort of repudiation. Well, of course, it is. It's a repudiation in in herself of the romantic glamour that they carried for her when she was young. Mm. And in terms of the kind of that sense of guilt, the idea is that along with that sense of campaigning, which was very strong in the family, 
you know, they were all kind of, a lot of them were radicals and progressives and fought for this stuff. And is there also sort of this guilt or, or shame at being comfortable when others were struggling? And you say in your review, which did surprise me a bit, that Polly Tomby says she doesn't share it. Does that ring true for you? No, it doesn't. She says she's not tormented, partly because of the selective way she's chosen to write the memoir. There's whole tranches of her her life and experience and social groups that are not here at all. So it does give a slightly distorted impression. So one you will sort of jump to conclusions that aren't based on anything just because you've got a partial story. And I hope she's not. I mean, I wish her not to be tormented, but an uneasy inheritance is an uneasy burden to carry. And writing about it doesn't convince me as much as perhaps you might want the reader to be convinced. And the other thing I want to say about that sort of selective way of writing is that, you know, the phrase that Edward Thompson uses about the enormous condescension of posterity, and it kept coming into my mind, partly because it's as though she, as a representative of her generation, looking back on what the previous generation of social reformers tried to do, it's almost as though she knows better and they become diminished. So these very significant figures, Arnold Toynbee and various others, and and the kind of work that they did, which was at the end of the 19th century, kind of really big stuff, somehow that gets diminished in the telling. So what you get is the insider, almost like the child's view. It's almost like a teenage voice at times, dismissing this fuddy-duddy older generation. And I don't believe that she really intends that because she also says, you know, that the work they did was enormously beneficial. But nonetheless, something to do with the memoir, in a memoir that has been willfully selective, it brings them really right down. And I was thinking also about Lytton Strachey, you know, his eminent Victorians, and the way in which that book of biographies, Victorians, to bring them, to cut them down to size, and it did, and is a wonderful set of essays, but it's not written by a family member. And so it isn't the voice of the child sort of looking back at these slightly tiresome relatives So something about the form is also significant, I think, here. It's so interesting. I wanted to ask you about the form because I always find memoirs so psychologically gripping, you know, and so very much as you're sort of indicating for what they don't say as for what they do and the way that they do and don't say things. But it's always struck me that something that people, you know, almost a truism is that there are people that you can only write in relationships, you can only write about when people are dead. And I get that because you're going to be kind of, released from the possibility of of a confrontation and I've always thought I just don't feel that that would make it any easier a task and I don't know you know you as as a memoirist whether that seems true to you I think in a more simple way I think it is just easier when they're dead and just because they can't answer back and the circle Mm. at some level is closed even though I mean, I completely agree with you. It goes on. The relationship continues, but it's, you know, the conversation is only coming from one side. 
and the changes are coming from one side. Mm. So I do think it's easier when they're dead. And but you, I mean, I'm thinking now. I mean, I I wrote about my family when and I wrote quite a lot about my siblings, and they were all alive, and it did make me not say some things and enable me and allow me to say others but I was definitely taking on board all the time the possibilities of how they might react to this or that so it was a a limiting factor whereas the thought of writing about people particularly if they were in the previous generation like I was writing about my grandparents who I didn't know that just felt like history I think I must have a very deep-rooted fear of being haunted. I sort of do <laughs> kind of mean that. I mean, it sounds sort of fanciful. And I, and again, this will sound fanciful and the kind of thing that makes people really despise literary critics. But I honestly think memoir writing is genuinely a brave thing to do. And I think that came out of your piece, actually, even in the points where it's successful and she didn't quite... Do, I mean, you just mm. feel it's the exposure of self yeah. Far more than anything that you sort of literally expose. Yes, I think that's right. I think it is a brave thing to do. And also that one ought to bear that in mind, always, you know, speaking as a as a literary critic and reviewer, it's easy to well, it's easy to forget how much and what the knock-on effects can be mm. for, for someone who publishes Absolutely. something of this sort. You said that she was kind of that it feels as though she's reducing them cutting them down to size a bit and perhaps not giving full weight to their really really impressive and important achievements of that generation of grandparents generation I wonder if that's partly because she feels kind of rather low about the fact that as you said at the beginning the disparities are, are still there and in some ways worse do you know what I mean I wonder if she thinks well look at that you know so what they did all that and look where we are now I wonder if writing it at this particular time makes that feel very acute I think that absolutely I think that I think where she quotes figures saying that you know the top one percent have benefited insanely from recent developments the top 10 percent have done very well and the middle lot have stagnated and the bottom of fallen back I think that's like a comment on her life's work somehow and also obviously on her inheritance but you know her own efforts not only as a journalist but also trying to become a politician standing for the social democrats being involved with the you know the split from the labor party and wanting to be an MP I mean everything all of that kind of work on the left over the past you know, decade and a half or so, must have you know, must look really like it. You, know, you could have been doing something else. Really, mm. I mean, it's depressing. You know, it's like, like I say in the review. You know, a lot of us ask the question: How could how could this have happened? How could we have found ourselves in this situation? The answer that she comes up with is that you know, privilege, it's privilege that's entrenched. So she's looking very much at the social structures in this country and the way in which it serves the interests of the wealthy. And it increasingly isn't there to serve the interests of the poor. Mm. And, you know, and that's a really serious thing to be saying. It is, and especially if you have basically spent your life campaigning and actively going in and trying to actively change things. The whole thing is just really fascinating, and I'm so glad that you've written about it for us and that we had you to 
to talk us through it. So thank you very much, Norma. Yes, honestly, Norma, I thought it was an absolutely gripping review. I mean, an exemplary review. I thought it was just so, you gave so much of the book and it has made me think I do have to go and read it. And also your own memoir. Yeah, well, you know, do read that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone rush out and buy it. I've done a follow-up, so there will there will be another one. Is that near on the horizon? It's almost finished. So in terms of near on the horizon, I've done the first three parts and I've just got to write the fourth part. So yes, almost finished, but not near the horizon of publication yet. Okay. So you're in you're in the trenches as well. I'm in the trenches, yeah. Well, we will look forward to that very much. Come back and speak to us about it when it emerges, please. Oh, I'd love to. Well, thanks so much for inviting me on this morning. It's been a real blast. Still to come on the show, Nicholas Clee on how a bee sting changes a family's life. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. The Irish novelist Paul Murray is not, I think we can say, a fan of the slender novel. His first three, The Evening of Long Goodbyes, Skippy Dies and The Mark and the Void, clocked in at a combined 1,500 pages. He is, on the other hand, a fan of the dramatic, inciting incident. Skippy Dies, which was set in a fictional boarding school in Dublin, begins with Skippy himself meeting his end in a donut eating competition. His new novel, The Bee Sting, takes him to well over the 2000 page mark. And Nicholas Clee has read and reviewed it in its entirety, of course, in this week's paper. He joins us now. Welcome, Nick. Hello. Well, thank you very much for joining us, but also, you know, reading a very long novel. I mean, as reviewers, we do sometimes really enjoy the moment when we're sent 80 pages to review, don't we? I have to confess the heart 
does sink. And it is harder to review long novels. I just think 600 pages, I sit down, look at the blank page and think, where on earth do I begin? But I should say that this book was a pleasure to read. It took me a while to read it, but I enjoyed it. It has brio, it has energy, it keeps one diverted on every page. So that alleviated the hardship. Well, I reviewed Paul Murray's last novel, The Mark and the Void, which was an extremely playful, philosophical novel. And has a character called Paul, who's also a writer, who attempts to take over the life of a hapless banker and it's set in the world of high finance and in Dublin. And, you know, there's all that Celtic tiger energy and crash energy. This one's very different, isn't it? It is. There are some stylistic tricks in it, but I wouldn't describe it as a sort of self-conscious novel in the way that Skidney Dies was. It is really a straight narrative, albeit one that travels backwards and forwards in time. And it is a straight-down-the-line, I would say, comic novel, but a comic novel, as so many are, which involves tragedy rather fast that veers on tragedy and it's extremely dark in points at certain sections. And it's a family saga. Just tell us a bit about the family in question and the sort of rather extended nature of that family and as you you've just mentioned the time period the novel covers. Yes I agree with you it is a family saga and that is one of the ways in which one would describe it as more conventional than Guys. The large part of it is taken up with four long sections, each dealing with one member of the Barnes family. The Barnes family, who were, I say were because the economy is collapsing, but were quite something in this smallish Irish town through their ownership of a car dealership. But the economics are ravaging the high street and indeed the Barnes business as the novel opens. Each section is told entirely in free and direct style. And I imagine some people after reading this novel may have trouble remembering whether those sections were written in the first person or the third because there's no authorial intrusion at all. We are following the thought processes of the four members of the family. I should say who they are. They are Dickie, who has been ill-suited to car dealership and who is trying to escape from the consequences of the collapse of the business. His wife, Imelda, the town beauty, who comes from a violent background and who herself is dealing with demons. A 12-year-old boy called PJ, whom we learn alarmingly may be being groomed online by a predator. And Cass, the daughter, who is finishing school and hoping to go to university. I hesitated to say this in the review, but it seems to me that he does inhabit these characters absolutely convincingly. 
I felt as a middle-aged man, I would perhaps be more cautious than to say he captures exactly the thought processes of a teenage young woman. But I've, it feels absolutely authentic to me. I don't know what you felt, Alex. Yes, I did. I mean, I think that is partly, it's a function or a, or a result of the style, isn't it? Because when you have that close-up point of view, you are essentially, in terms of, you know, character, you're sort of being bewitched in a way. I mean, we know that it's a construct. We know that fictional character is a construct. We know that it's not a real human being, and this is not a, a memoir, although that's a different story, I suppose, artifice and memoir. But, you know, we know that it's a sort of trick, I suppose, but it's the way that he does it that makes you feel you really are inside their heads. Yeah, I agree. And what he captures, I think, is that feeling that many young people have, that they don't quite know the person they're supposed to be. And if, as Kaz looks into the future, she can't quite see the person herself there yet she feels that all sorts of things are expected of, of her. I think one of her problems is that she has a minute of a friend called Elaine, who is sometimes a friend and sometimes ignores her. And Cass's admiration for Elaine and her insecurity about that friendship makes her very unhappy. Plus, she feels she's supposed to meet boys but they are all in this small town unsatisfactory so that isn't much good either she starts drinking a lot and one fears that she's going to wreck her chances of going on to study in dublin we're veering towards the territory of normal people aren't we <laughs> i mean it's interesting mm. because paul murray has written about dublin dublin features trinity college feature they both feature in this book but this is very much a novel of small town life isn't it yes it is I mean, there are dublin sections so that's where both involving cass and in flashback dickie her father when he was in dublin but neither of them feels entirely comfortable or involved with dublin life I mean, they are going to return to their hometown on fields. And Dickie gets involved in a gay relationship in Dublin. Maybe that's the person who he is meant to be. But he also feels the weight of family expectations. Uh, it's really very poignant that uh, his lover really does feel very strongly about him. And Dickie possibly should stay with him, but he doesn't. And he breaks his lover's heart. And then he marries, as we know, and he becomes this sort of recognisable small-town figure, the business owner, the prosperous person, the, the person who has more money than some of the other people in the town, etc. I mean, you know, this is obviously a sort of dynamic that is echoed in British life and in British fiction, you know, with perhaps, you know, with London taking that kind of big city role. but. Living in Ireland, I found there was something so recognisable about that idea of Dublin as a place where those kinds of different lives happen and the pull of the small town. I think it's something that's often worked over in Irish fiction. I suppose it's partly because 
the proportion of people who live, the proportion of the population who live in Dublin compared with the rest of the country. It's a country of few very large population centres and much small town and rural life in a small country in itself. And I think he really he really captures that, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I should also say that this is, he's not a surrealist, but perhaps one thinks of Flan O'Brien, another great comic writers. He's a very funny writer. His capturing of voices is spot on. His capturing of eccentricities, his use of metaphor and simile are, are very amusing. It's an entertaining book. At the same time, when it gets dark, it gets very, very dark indeed. And I won't give anything away, but as it races towards a conclusion, one feels the darkness closing in, as if one has been misled into laughing at these people when they may rather be tragic figures. Well, I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, these dramatic, inciting incidents that run through Paul Murray's fiction. The title of this novel rather gives gives it away a little bit or points us in the right direction. Just tell us a bit about that. There has been a sort of a disaster involving a bee that rather kind of sets the scene. Yes, I think this is a novel in which certain small events may be portentous. And the bee sting in question is certainly felt by Imelda, to whom it happens, to be something that seals her feeling that her marriage is ill-starred. She's driving. Now, this is the story that we hear, anyway. She is driving with her father, an extremely unpleasant character, to her wedding. She has a veil and a bee gets stuck behind it, stings her on the eye, and she can't remove her veil throughout the wedding, she feels, because her eye blows up. At the same time, she is recently bereaved. She was the girlfriend of Dickie's brother, Frank, a charismatic figure, a great footballer, Gaelic footballer, I should say, a hard drinker, and it turns out someone who self-destructs. But Imelda feels really that she was meant for him, and she expects him to be a kind of ghostly presence at the wedding that she will feel. So these two things conspire to make her feel that her marriage, I think, is ill-starred. And, you know, it's a 500-page novel called The Beasting. So a small event may reverberate loudly and spread a long way. Well, you wouldn't want to get stung by a bee on your way to your wedding, would you? No, I think you would feel, actually, that someone was telling you something. (laughs) turn back now but she doesn't I she's a great character actually I love the you know she's not popular in the town because she's got wealth for a start and she's she's in a sense not afraid to flaunt it yes of course the people who are wealthy here are like everyone else they feel they that they might have lived other lives including the self-satisfied 
Morris Barnes, who founded the business. He often refers to this great business that he, a lad from Piccadilly Lane, had set up. He is yet another character who has somehow lived a different life from one that may have been intended for him. He has no trouble about that, and of course he has been successful. But I think everyone else in the novel feels that something has gone wrong in their lives. Well, it's interesting, you know, you, you made that point that it's a very common feeling for young people to feel that sense of a life just out of view and what's it going to be and what are the kind of jostling possibilities and how to decide which one to follow. But of course, you know, now from the firm view of, of middle age, I feel, I don't know about you, that you don't really stop feeling like that, do you? And it seemed to me that was one of the things that this that this novel was sort of about. That's very true, although one learns to a certain extent to disguise that, even from oneself a bit. Yes, managing expectations becomes key. Yes, <laughs> but uh, there are moments when you think, God, look at me, I'm, you know, I'm growing up. Yeah, when will that happen? <laughs> <laughs> or I'm supposed to be growing up, yeah. Precisely, I'm doing all the things that I'm told I'm supposed to do as a grown-up. I was reading an interview that Paul Murray gave a few years ago, I think when the last novel came out, and he says, the beauty of Ireland from a writing perspective is that so much of history and so much of modernity seems to converge here, which I thought was a very interesting way of putting it. I certainly, it chimes with my experience of living in Ireland, that there seems to be a sort of coexistence of past and present in a way that feels slightly different to me from places that I've elsewhere that I've lived. And again, I think that kind of comes through in style as well as what actually happens in the, the novel, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, there are, I don't know where you were referring to this, Alex, but uh, the passages involving Imelda are unpunctuated, which of mm. course makes one think of Molly Bloom. And one assumes that must have been deliberate. So it's rather sort of ambitious and brave of him to evoke that. Do you think more ambitious than for a, a non-Irish writer, do you think? Ah, well, uh, cultural appropriation. <laughs> yes, uh, perhaps yeah. that would be even more ambitious. But, or not to say foolhardy. <laughs> I was perfectly comfortable with reading this. I suspect some people may find it um, rather presumptuous of him. And I'm not sure that actually those passages really need that lack of punctuation. I don't think he would have lost a huge amount by putting in the old full stop and comma. But it's an aspect of the model I couldn't really make my mind up about. I haven't commented on it much. Another aspect is that in the last part of the novel, he switches to the second person. And I can't quite work out what I think about that either, except that he's clearly picking up the pace of the book, the sections dealing with each of the four main characters become shorter and shorter as they all converge on one place. And somehow the second person gives a kind of urgency to the narrative 
not only that provided by the shorter chapters. So he tries these stylistic effects, uh, I think mostly with success, but I am not entirely sure that they were necessary. It's a so very much a less used form, the second person, isn't it, by comparison with first and third person. But I suppose it just automatically you're aware of it. It's a more sort of intrusive thing because we're so much less used to it. Yes, yes. One can think of a few well-known novels that do employ this method. And it's surprising, of course, after you've read it for a bit, you stop noticing it. Uh, it doesn't seem tricksy once you get into the narrative but it's a um i don't know i i i maybe he was saying something by the adoption of the second person that i don't i haven't quite grasped anyway nicholas i can't be talking to you on this podcast without remembering a time that we worked together 20 years ago, which just tells you, you know, where we are vis-a-vis middle age, because I don't think I was a spring chicken then. But we were co-panellists, weren't we, on Granter's Best of Young British Novelists list in 2003. Yes, there's a shocking thing. We were talking, weren't we, about how one stops and looks at oneself and thinks, gosh, is it really me 20 years later? Or was that me 20 years ago? But that was a pleasure to do, wasn't it, Alex? Of course, we had a few really outstanding writers, two of my favourites being Zadie Smith and Sarah Waters, particularly. Uh, I'm very pleased that they were on the list, but one could have hardly miss their merits. And uh, we also had the extraordinary... Pleasure and privilege, I think, of working on that list with others, including Robert McCrum, but also including Hilary Mantel and Ian Jack, both incredible figures in the literary world and no longer with us. Yes, I'm very sad to say both died quite recently. They were both, Ian and Hilary, in different ways, people one couldn't help looking up to. I think Ian, because he just seemed the kind of moral arbiter. And Hillary, as you'll remember, was the person whose opinion counted the most on that panel, the one we all looked up to. And uh, despite her eminence, you know, eminent people, sometimes one meets them and they think they can phone us in when asked to do uh, jobs like this. She very much didn't do that. She clearly read everything. She sent highly entertaining emails with 150 to 250 word reviews of each of the novels she read. That's one of the regrets of my life that I've lost those emails. She was a wholly extraordinary, admirable person, I thought. Uh, it was a privilege to work with her, as it was with Ian. She was. And now I'm going to not let you go before we mention your own book, which is coming out this week, I think. I mean, you're, you're very versatile as a writer. You've written a book about cookery. You wrote a, a wonderful short piece of memoir, which I absolutely loved about all the things that you'd done that you were ashamed of. <laughs> Marvellous book. And, and now you've written about horses. I mean, that's not a surprise to me because I know you are you are keen on the turf, shall we say. 
Yeah, so I, I wrote one previous book about horse racing. It's called The Calypse. It was about a famous 18th century thoroughbred who had a, a rackety owner whose wife was a brothel madam. All modern thoroughbreds are descended from the Calypse. And that was a fascinating history to write about. This has been, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Well, this book was commissioned. You don't often hear that nowadays by a publisher, and he asked me to write a book about race courses. And I'm not sure whether what I wrote was exactly what he had in mind, but I went off around the country and indeed round Ireland. Did you come to my local race course, Goran? I didn't go to Goran. I went to the three of the biggest courses in the sort of not too far from Dublin, Punchestown, the Curragh and Leopardstown. And I went to Galway during the festival. So that was a rather splendid experience. And I talked to racing people from jockeys to trainers, to bookmakers, to people who had to worry about ground maintenance, to stewards, to handicappers. And they were all very kind and welcoming and informative. So it was just the best job ever. I feel like rather <laughs> loose end now. I'm no longer doing it because I don't think I'll ever have a job as nice as that again. Well, never say never. But also, you know, you've now finished a 500, 600-page book and written a book. I do see that you're at a slight loose end. <laughs> <laughs> the, book, which is, the book is called Courses for Horses. And the book we've been talking about is Paul Murray's The Beasting. And... I am taking it really as a thumbs up from you. Oh, yes, very much a thumbs up. This is a book that is both fun and alarming to read. And it's tremendously well written and inventive. And I think I used the word brio earlier. It describes it well, you know, you don't feel he's getting tired by page 500. So that one. Nicholas Clee, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Alex. have time for this week our thanks go to norma clark and nicholas clee and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs> <laughs>